opinion, the three victims were brutally murdered. Is that correct? From my look at the scene uh, of the crime, uh, it would be my best judgment that they were uh, assaulted and murdered. You found uh, cameras and binoculars covered with blood at the scene, which you feel could have been used as the murder weapons. That's right. You think this could have been done, Sheriff, by one man? I suppose one man could have done it. Do you think it could be more than one man involved in this crime? That's a, that's a possibility. You have these three women who are found dead in the woods. You have this man who goes to prison for 60 years and there's elements of it that feel reminiscent of the Shawshank Redemption, but with so much more intrigue and it just, it just grabbed my attention. On the morning of March 14th, 1960, Lillian Oding, Francis Murphy, and Mildred Lindquist, the wives of three prominent businessmen from the affluent Chicago suburb of Riverside, Illinois, left their homes to embark on four-day getaway to the lodge at Starve Rock State Park. The park boasted some of the most breathtaking views in the state, from countless mysterious slotted canyons to a grand waterfall that froze over into a majestic ice sculpture in the winter. The lodge itself was a split log masterpiece featuring a floor-to-ceiling double-sided fireplace. Luxurious rooms awaited them. The trip was supposed to be an escape from the routine a carefree adventure in the woods for the three friends, it turned out to be something very different. The women ate lunch at the lodge, and then, according to the most prevalent narrative, left their purses in their rooms and headed out for a hike to the famous St. Louis Canyon. Depending on who you ask, it was the last time they were seen alive. Two days later, park searchers found Lillian Oding Francis Murphy and Mildred Lindquist in a cave in St. Louis Canyon, their bodies tightly bound, partially stripped, and savagely beaten to death. March of 1960 was, and still is, the coldest march on record for LaSalle County, Illinois. Snow blanketed the park, and because of the cold temperatures, determining an exact time of death was difficult investigators guessed the women met their violent ends on the afternoon of March 14th, the same day they arrived in Starve Rock State Park. But what was the motive? A random robbery? A mob hit? A serial killer? The limited evidence available made the motive difficult to determine. The case made national headlines. Three upstanding, respectable women mothers and wives were viciously murdered in America's heartland. What made the case all the more unsettling was the notion of a boogeyman in the woods. The public wanted answers, and until they had them, they were terrified to visit the park and its surrounding areas. In November 1960, after countless hours of interrogation, several polygraph tests, and a signed confession, The police said they had their man. 21-year-old Chester Weger was arrested and charged with the murders. Within a year, he stood trial and was found guilty by a jury of his peers. Despite facing the death penalty for his alleged crimes and extreme pressure from the state for a capital sentence, a jury sentenced Weger to life in prison. One juror said they chose to avoid the death penalty just in case they had made a mistake. After six decades behind bars, 
Chester Wiga was released on parole on February 21st, 2020 at the age of 80. There are still numerous unanswered questions, loads of untested evidence, and scores of unfollowed leads. Once the decision had been made to pursue Chester Wieger as the main suspect, all investigation into other suspects stopped. This begs the question, did the police get it right? Was Chester Wieger really the man who brutally murdered Lillian Oding, Francis Murphy, and Mildred Lindquist in St. Louis Canyon? There's a saying, you can bury the dead, but you can't bury the truth. But the truth of what really happened on the afternoon of March 14, 1960 remains a mystery. The official narrative and the physical evidence simply do not support one another. The only thing we can say with certainty when it comes to this case is that there's a story yet to be told. That's Chester in nineteen sixty one, explaining that he confessed to save his life. We'll dive into that in later episodes. But before we get started, some introductions are in order. I'm civil rights attorney Andy Hale, and welcome to The Starve Rock Murders, a podcast where we'll be peeling back the layers, exploring the myriad theories of whodunit, and examining every angle of a 62-year-old crime whose ripple effects have been felt by three generations of victims. Joining me on this journey is Professor Whitney Braun. Hey, Whitney. Hey, Andy. I am so incredibly excited to be part of this, and I am looking forward to rolling up my sleeves and absolutely digging through every single detail of this case. Well, I couldn't ask for a better wing person and partner to do this with. Uh, Whitney, who in addition to teaching medical school by day, served as the supervising producer on the Murders at Starve Rock docuseries that was released on HBO in December. Whitney may also have the distinction of being the nation's biggest nerd when it comes to researching the minutiae associated with this convoluted case. I was just wondering, can you tell us more about how you became so intimately involved in the case? What was it that initially captured your attention and brought you to the story? I was representing a man named Cleve Heidelberg, who had been in prison for 45 years, had always maintained his innocence. He was up for parole, and there was a parole hearing in 2017. Up to this time, Cleve Heidelberg had refused to ever show remorse, refused to admit he committed this shooting of a, a Peoria a police officer in 1970. And we were making a documentary movie about it, which we're finishing up now, and we're filming that parole hearing. So the next day in the paper, I see a big article in the Chicago Tribune about a guy named Chester Weger, who was also up for parole that day. And he was denied. And I read the story about him. It talked about the Starve Rock murders in 1960. I had never heard of those uh, Starve Rock murders. I wasn't born in 1960. 
But what caught my eye was he said that he was innocent and he had maintained his innocence for 50 years uh, plus. He never expressed remorse. I thought, oh my gosh, this guy sounds like Cleve Heidelberg's twin brother. It's another guy who for half a century was professing his innocence, refusing to express remorse when that actually could help him get parole. So I thought to myself, you know, I really need to hear more about this case. And in the article, they also had a short little interview with a woman named Nancy Porter, who was in her 90s at the time, the last uh, juror who was alive, who said she always kind of regretted her guilty verdict. And she thought Chester's confession made no sense. So it just struck me as being like, wow, this sounds like another Cleve Heidelberg kind of case. I really need to know more. So I actually wrote Chester Weger a letter and said, hey, I'm you know, uh, working on this case for Cleve Heidelberg. Your case sounds a lot like his. I would love to talk to you. Here's a guy for half a century. Think about that. Half a century had been proclaiming his innocence. But when I looked at the case, it it's 1960. There is, it's a confession-only case. And what I mean by that is there's no physical evidence tying Chester Weger to this horrible, uh, grisly crime scene. And I think another thing that was really struck me was 1960 was three years before the landmark legal decision Supreme Court case of um, Brady versus Maryland. Brady versus Maryland is a case that basically said the state has to turn over to a criminal defendant any potentially exculpatory information. So Chester Weger was tried at a time when the state was not even obligated to give him evidence that could have helped him prove his innocence. One of the ways in which this information is gleaned from Chester is through uh, through interrogation. He was subjected to the John Reed technique, um, which we associate now with uh, coerced confessions from like the Central Park Five. Well, a couple things. What we now know, and the Innocence Project has statistics on this, that in cases of wrongful confessions, uh, one of the key factors, probably the most important factor, is the threat of death or great bodily harm. That is something that can lead to a coerced confession. In this case, Chester Weger was threatened with death. Chester Weger was threatened with death if he didn't confess. Let me explain. About six months after the crimes had occurred, the police tell Chester, we want you to go to Chicago and take another polygraph. Now, let me pause. Why? Why? He's already passed several given by John Reed's associates. Now they want to take him to Chicago for what? The super duper double secret polygraph examination? You know, he's going to get another one. Chester agrees. He doesn't refuse. He's got nothing to hide. So he's he goes to Chicago for this polygraph, and he's taken to John Reed's office. And the people there are LaSalle County Sheriff's Deputy William Dummett, a state's attorney Craig Armstrong, and some other people. All day, Chester's interrogated, and all day he proclaims his innocence. All day. And that night, at midnight, they leave Chicago to drive back, and Chester's in a car with LaSalle County Sheriff's Deputy Bill Dummett and Craig Armstrong, the assistant state's attorney. Now, here's what's important. At a pretrial hearing and at trial, Chester testified 
that Dummett told him several times during the ride that if Chester didn't sign a confession, he would be given the electric chair. And at a pretrial hearing at a trial, Dummett denied making those threats to Chester Weger. And here's where it gets really interesting. Craig Armstrong is called at trial, and he impeaches Dummett, and he testifies truthfully, says, yes, Dummett did threaten Chester Weger with riding the Thunderbolt on that ride home. He said it several times. I mean, how astonishing is that? So here we've got a guy, Bill Dummett, that we know from Craig Armstrong's testimony. He threatened Chester Weger with riding the Thunderbolt if he didn't confess, and then he lied about it. And we know from statistics now that a leading factor in a false confession is a threat of death or great bodily harm. So that is the context that we all have to keep in mind when we are assessing the credibility of Chester Weger's alleged confession. One of the things that struck me was, was motive. You know, what, what is Chester Weger's motive to not only kill these three women, but they are bludgeoned to death? estimated to be over 100 blows. And then this guy goes back to work. He's on his break and he goes back to work. Can you tell me another case where somebody slaughtered one, two, or three people or more and then goes back to their job? That is the big question, you know, after pouring over all this information is what is the motive? You know, I I, I mean, to, to heinously murder three people requires a level of passion uh, and and a level of of uh, connection, it would seem, with the victims. Uh, what would elicit that level of rage? And and when you look at the life of Chester Weger, I think this is what the confusing part is. Is is exactly to your point. Who commits a triple homicide and then goes and washes dishes? No, you know this this is not a crime scene where okay somebody is shot. I mean somebody bludgeoned with allegedly uh, a, a log, but, you know, a hundred blows, blood everywhere. There'd be blood on your clothes. There'd be blood on your shoes, blood on your pants. Um, I mean, it is just this horrific crime scene, a crime scene, it looks like, you know, of of rage, you know, to have, it's not like somebody was just, like I said, shot or or stabbed once, to have that many blows. Why? What he says in his alleged confession about how this started uh, never made any sense to me, which is that basically one of the women had a purse. He was going to steal her purse and he grabbed it. It uh, turned out to be a camera strap. There was a little bit of a verbal argument. And then everybody just decided, okay, let's just forget about it and go our own ways. And as they're walking out of St. Louis Canyon, according to Chester Weger's confession, one of the victims attacks him. And then that leads to this, you know, crime where all three women get killed. Does that make any sense that one of the women is going to attack Chester Weger, uh, attack somebody who just tried to rob them? No, that doesn't make any sense. I feel like the Starve Rock State Park is its own character in this narrative, in a sense. You, you have this beautiful state park you have these three women that go there because it's the the crown jewel um, of of the Illinois state park system. 
they expect to take this leisurely walk in the woods and then they encounter a person or persons who do this to them. And, and to your point, it's not like they were in a particularly remote place, right? This, this, this is a, a well-trafficked public area. This is, this is a state park uh, where people are coming and going with their families. If you're going to commit a murder and there's something that's sort of premeditated about this, where you're going to try to you know, take out these women, why would you do it there? Why would you do it in that particular part of the park? And then my my other question on it is, why would you do this just as a robbery? And then if the robbery went awry, how would a robbery going awry escalate to that level of violence? I mean, if you play it out and you just, if you play out this alleged confession, they're walking, you know, down the trail out of the St. Louis Canyon. And then one of the women attacks Chester Weger, okay? Uh, first of all, you could easily just kind of fight back, push that woman away. You probably don't even need to do much other than just, you know, throw her to the ground. Um, let's just take it one more step. Let's say you hit her, you struck her, and you somehow killed her or severely injured her. Why, like you say, do you have to continue in this fit of rage with a hundred blows all over their head? You know, why this rage for, for all three victims? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense that you'd have to go through all that. And it just doesn't add up that it could be, you know, the, it started with this kind of botched robbery and then the women attacking Chester Weaker. Um, in terms of where it took place in St. Louis Canyon, it's also, like I said, it's it's a place that's most people want to go to uh, in the park. If it's premeditated, you may think that, you know, you would wait till the women were perhaps in a more secluded part of the park. Chester Weger was a relatively small guy. You know, at the at the time, he's he's he clocks in at about what a buck twenty. He's about one hundred and twenty pounds, soaking wet. And you have three women who are not only bludgeoned to death, but they're dragged in a very uh, difficult part of the state park to navigate. It's, uh, I mean, w- when we went out to the state park to film, for example, for the documentary, it was hard just to get into the canyon to, to film, let alone to try to kill someone and try to then drag their bodies to a secluded part of the park. And so it's very difficult, I think, to reconcile the official narrative of the story that has this 120-pound guy not only killing these three women, but then physically moving their bodies all on his own, positioning them, uh, creating this macabre tableau where these three women are found in a cave, and then getting himself somehow cleaned up and walking back to work. I think there, there's there's a part of this the physical environment that just doesn't jive with the official narrative of the story. And I feel like that has never been satisfactorily explained to me by any of the official court documents or the 1960 trial transcripts describing how they think this all went down. You know, putting them in the cave and, and, you know, kind of positioning the bodies and staging the scene to me doesn't at all help him say, Hey, I couldn't have done it because the women were, you know, partially disclosed and sexually assaulted and like the state could have said okay so yeah you did that so that whole process to me was more akin to somebody wanting to make it look like a sexual assault when the motive was something very different 
And to me, that actually speaks of premeditation in the sense that it is deliberate attempt to, to perhaps throw off the fact that these women could have been targeted and intended to be killed. You know, if they would have, if the three women would have each been shot in the head and just left on the trail, it would have clearly looked like an execution and it would have raised eyebrows. The way it was, where they're found bludgeoned to death and then apparently sexually assaulted by the way their bodies were displayed, it makes it look like something very, very different. And I don't think that's the work of 21-year-old Chester Weger, the dishwasher at the Starve Rock Lodge. You can almost see when you lay out the sequence of events of law enforcement, you can almost watch their confusion on paper, right? You can almost, you can almost watch them looking at someone and then looking at somebody else and looking at somebody else. And, and you could, I can picture them in, you know, in the police station or, or at the state's attorney's office, just kind of, you know, wringing their hands and going, why, who, what, wh- why? What you hear oftentimes in, in cases is, oh, it's a heater case, meaning it's a case where there's tremendous pressure for the police to solve it. This was your classic heater case. You've got this beautiful Starve Rock State Park. You've got this horrific uh, triple murder that's a national news story. Nobody's going to the park. Nobody's visiting the park. Nobody wants to leave their house. It is a case that needed to be solved. There was pressure to solve it. And I think that pressure mounted. And what people need to know is the women were found, you know, March 16th. 1960. Chester Weger is not arrested and doesn't give his confession till November 17th. And what gets lost in the shuffle is, you know, all that time passed. Chester Weger passed several polygraphs right out of the box in the first month and a half. Passed several polygraphs. So why are the police going back to him later and saying, hey, we got to take you to Chicago in September to take another polygraph? Why? He already passed several. Chester Weger's arrested in November. They need to close the case. They need a fall guy. And I think they found their fall guy. And in my opinion, you know, that's at a point when there was enormous pressure to put this case to bed. I don't know. You know, sitting here today recording this podcast, after doing two and a half years of of immersive research. I've done two and a half years of immersive research into this case. And I don't know sitting here today what happened in those woods. I have a lot of theories. Um, I can just say, and I will I will stake my, my life on this, that the official story can't be right. The official story cannot be the truth of what happened in those woods. Now, that isn't to say that that Chester maybe was wasn't a part of it maybe he still knows something i don't i don't know you know and i there there's so many unanswered questions but i just i just cannot see how any logical person could look over all of the evidence and say yes the official story that was told um by the state of illinois is is a correct interpretation of the events in question of march 14th 1960 i always say in these cases there's more to the story it is very difficult to just take a dry record, police reports, trial transcripts, testimony, medical reports, autopsy reports, and try to figure out what happened, uh, especially in a case, you know, that is 60 plus years old. You just have to dig and dig and dig for clues. What do the forensics show? What does the crime scene show? 
What does the evidence show? When you really take a deep dive, you start to learn much more about how the crime played out. I took up this case because I thought Chester Weger may not have committed this crime. It's a big jigsaw puzzle. We've got a lot of pieces assembled. We've got the corners done for sure. Now we're starting to fill in the middle. It is a search for the truth, and hopefully at the end of the day, we will get to the truth. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode of the Starve Rock Murders with Andy Hale. We have got so much to discuss and unpack as we continue to dissect this case in detail. And for more information on today's episode, you can check out our website, andyhalepodcast.com. We're going to be putting up documents, photos, other information if you want even more detail. And you can email us if anybody out there has a tip or knows something about the Starve Rock Murders. Reach out about this case or any other case where you might know about somebody who was wrongfully convicted. I'd love to hear about it. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. This show was produced in collaboration with Phineas Ellis, sound designed by Studio D, and hosted by myself and Whitney Braun. We'll see you next time.